The rules have changed. As Erica Dewan said in her book, Digital Body Language, today we're all immigrants learning a new culture and language, except this time it's in the digital space. Nearly 70% of communication between teams is virtual today. And ThinkLab research shows that approximately 75% of A&D firms plan to operate on a hybrid or distributed work model. A recent CBRE survey projects that 87% of large companies will adopt a hybrid work policy. But many leaders are left wrestling with how to create a culture that grows and strengthens in a distributed model. Now, whether you're 100% back in the office as a firm or you're implementing a 100% remote strategy, the digital realm isn't going away. In today's episode, we're going to examine how to leverage digital to enhance your firm practices and guide your clients wherever they may be on this spectrum of physical digital interactions. First, we'll hear from an expert who guides large organizations to implement hybrid work and address their mental blind spots. Then, we'll hear from firm leaders from two interior design, giants of design firms on how their teams are staying connected regardless of the distance. But first, I'm pleased to introduce Amanda Darley of Mannington Commercial, today's episode sponsor, to walk you through the learning objectives. After listening to today's episode, you'll be able to point out the four cognitive biases that exist around hybrid work. Second, identify how virtual brainstorming can enhance innovation. Third, examine methods for successfully mentoring in a hybrid or remote work environment. And lastly, evaluate how to enhance communication with internal teams and with clients. You'll hear from Amanda again, later in the episode with instructions on how you can obtain continuing education credit through IDCEC or AIA for listening. My name is Dr. Gleb Sapurski. My passion is addressing mental blind spots. These are called cognitive biases. I've spent over 20 years consulting, coaching, and training for companies ranging from Aflac to Xerox on these topics. I spent about 15 years in academia researching and teaching at UNC Chapel Hill and Ohio State University. And I've just been fascinated with what's been happening recently with hybrid and remote work. I've been supporting clients who wanted to do a little bit of remote work before the pandemic throughout my 20 years of helping people make good decisions around the future of work. But this has become an incredibly richer environment and experience. Dr. Sapursky's newest book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, a manual on benchmarking to best practices for competitive advantage, focuses on best practices for adopting a hybrid first model. First, let's look at the foundation of this conversation, human behavior. Dr. Sapursky shares four cognitive biases, or the tendency of the human brain to simplify information through a filter of personal experience and preferences. The first mental blind spot around hybrid work is called the framing effect. One of the biggest mental blind spots around hybrid and remote work is called the framing effect. That is where the way that information is presented to us determines the way that we perceive this information. And that is a cognitive bias. The framing effect relates to the fact that leaders interpret remote work as a loss a loss of what they previously had, their in-office experience. 
They have felt successful being in the office. They have a career of 20, 30 years of being successful, knowing how to lead in the office. So they know how to do it. They're comfortable doing it, but they're not comfortable leading in remote settings and in hybrid settings. So they feel a loss around that and they don't see it as a real opportunity to get ahead of the curve because clearly hybrid remote work is sticking around and the future belongs to those who take advantage of this disruption as opposed to those who try to ignore or deny the disruption that is happening with us right now. And so they are not framing this correctly. And you need to help them frame this issue correctly for themselves so that they make better decisions in architectural and design decisions and in shaping office space and so on and helping support their workers in the home office, which that's very important as well. So how do you make good decisions around there? So that's a framing effect. The second cognitive bias is called the status quo bias. Another cognitive bias that's big here is called the status quo bias, where people really prefer what they're comfortable with, their status quo, and their gut intuition doesn't like change. The leaders, their status quo is still that experience before the pandemic. They want to turn back the clock. That's the preference for what they're comfortable with. So they want to turn back the clock to January 2020, and they don't realize that this is not a good idea, that they're not really able to turn back the clock and they're swimming against the tide. We know that over 80% of workers want to work more than half the work week remotely, and about 30% want full-time remote work. We know that they're much more likely to be retained, they are much more likely to be recruited, much higher engagement, satisfaction, productivity is much higher when they work remotely. So this is clearly the future, and they're not going to be able to turn back the clock, but that's what they perceive. The third is called the illusion of control. It's really important where leaders perceive themselves as able to control people when they're in the office and not control people when they're at home. So the illusion of control speaks to the fact that we have an illusion of control over what we see around us. It's not the fact in reality that we can control people when they're in the office. In fact, studies show that when workers are in the office, they're actually working around 36 to 39% of the time. So 36 to 39% of the time is actually their work, their productive work. The rest of the time, they're doing things like shopping on Amazon and checking social media, even looking for another job. In May 2020, the productivity for remote workers, people who are working remotely compared to in-person, was 5% higher. And that was because people didn't have to do the unpaid labor of the commute. So they worked about a third to a half of the time that they used to work on the commute. They now worked at home. And also they were more able to be focused. So they had less interruptions, less challenges because of less interruptions. And they had more flexibility in their schedule, so they could do remote. They could do work when it best aligned with their energy levels during the day, and so they were five percent more productive. By May 2022, they became nine percent more productive. So nine percent more productive, nearly doubling the improvement in productivity compared to in-office work. This is all from Stanford University, and that's because we learned how to work together in remote settings with better interior design, better architectural choices, better technology, and better use experience. And the last cognitive bias is called functional fixedness. It's kind of like the hammer nail syndrome. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you are used to one way of leading people and getting them to collaborate together, you tend to impose that way on all other venues 
it used to be functional, but when the context changes, that old way of leading and collaborating becomes dysfunctional. And so the way of leading and collaboration that you use in office-centric settings doesn't work when it's shoehorned into hybrid and remote settings. The key here is that you want to address that functional fixedness and give people better user experience. So focus on creating user experiences that are customized to remote settings, hybrid settings. That's what you really want to focus on. What is going to be the UX, the appropriate design choices, architectural choices for people to function effectively in hybrid settings and remote settings. That is the focus of what you should be doing. And you should be helping leaders address the four cognitive biases that I mentioned, the framing effect, the status quo bias, the illusion of control and functional fixedness. In his 2022 Harvard Business Review article titled, Why Virtual Brainstorming is Better for Innovation, Dr. Sapersky shares why being physically together isn't necessarily more powerful for brainstorming, contrary to popular belief. Brainstorming, just to clarify, that means that when you get together into a room and you start shooting ideas at each other. So let's say you get together with your clients in a room and you start to shoot ideas about new architectural project or a new design project, or of course within your team when the client gives you an assignment and you do the same thing. And that has a lot of benefits. One of these is called synergy, where someone else has an idea and then you have an idea inspired by their idea, which you wouldn't have had otherwise. Another is called social facilitation, where because other people in the room, you're motivated to come up with more ideas. Definitely benefits, but it has a lot of problems. And that's been long before the pandemic. One of these problems is called production blocking. So production blocking. That's when you have an idea, but other people are talking about another idea and you're reluctant to interrupt them and you lose track of your idea and you don't have that idea. So that production of the idea is blocked. That's especially problematic for people who are lower status in a company, and it's also for people who are more introvert. Another problem with in-person brainstorming? Evaluation, apprehension. So evaluation, apprehension, where people are worried about their off-the-wall idea being evaluated negatively by their colleagues, or if they have an idea that criticizes implicitly or explicitly somebody else on the team, they're worried about that. And that applies again to junior status team members and to people who are more pessimistically inclined. So some people are more optimistic, some people are more pessimistic. So those are two big problems of traditional brainstorming. And even before the pandemic, in the early 1990s, there was a methodology invented called asynchronous brainstorming. So the typical brainstorming is synchronous, meaning it happens at the same time. Now, a new technique was developed called asynchronous brainstorming, which happened asynchronously, so not at the same time. I adapted this technique to virtual settings, to remote settings. So virtually synchronous brainstorming is the technique that I will talk about here. And here's what it involves. First step, everyone asynchronously, so not at the same time, generates an idea about a topic that you want to address and inputs it in their ideas into a digital tool like Google Forms, like Mural. So Google Forms is great for text-based ideas. Mural is great for drawings of various sort, those brain mappings. So you insert your ideas and a crucial thing about this is that you do it anonymously. You can do the anonymity in two ways. So it's fully anonymous or only if the team leader slash facilitator knows about this. So I facilitated a number of these. You can have an independent facilitator or you can have the team leader be a facilitator. Now, that's great that this 
technique addresses evaluation apprehension. So with inputting ideas separately, because no one knows who input the idea except the team leader, or sometimes not even the team leader if you want to make it fully anonymous. That's one. And second, you get the benefits of social facilitation because you know other people are working at this the same time. And you address the production blocking because no one's going to prevent you from putting your idea into Google Forms or Mural. Second step is, again, anonymously evaluation of these ideas through commenting on and rating these ideas based on the number of categories of rating, like how excited you are, how novel this is, how practical this is, how applicable to the context, whatever the categories most relevant are. Again, you do this anonymously to address the evaluation apprehension. So this is very helpful. And now you've all seen each other's ideas. So now you're getting the synergy benefits of the brainstorming. And the third step is you just meet. You meet to talk about the ideas. Now at this stage, you very clearly see all the ideas that are generated and the ratings for each idea. So the best ideas are definitely the top. Whoever came up with them, they just floated to the top and the comments and so on. And you can just select among the top ideas and then decide on the next steps for implementing the ideas. Now, another benefit of this is that you get an idea bank of your other ideas, because some ideas might be great, but it might not be the right time, or you might not have the resources to implement them, but you might have the time and the resources to implement them later. So this is a very, very effective use of the idea bank to get ideas and store them for later. And you have extensive peer-reviewed research quoted in a number of venues, Harvard Business Review and so on, that clearly shows this methodology is better for brainstorming, meaning produces more ideas and more novel ideas as rated by independent third-party evaluators. Another important function in any organization is mentoring. Throughout the pandemic, a top concern that we heard from many companies, especially in the design industry, is that they felt junior talent wasn't getting the mentoring and direction that they would in in-person settings. You certainly don't need people to be there in the office, but you need to create more formal mentoring structures. Again, create the right virtual asynchronous brainstorming is the right UX for remote and hybrid teams. Now, you also can apply the right UX to mentoring. And what mentoring involves is creating formal mentoring programs and there are a couple of elements to it. One is creating formal mentoring program that's customized to a remote setting or a hybrid setting is having a mentor from inside the team for a junior staff member and having a mentor or two outside the team. So the mentor inside the team helps the junior staff member integrate into the team culture and help them with on the job training of various activities that they might be doing. This is super useful for the mentee in these interactions, again, for their actual work, what they need to be doing. The mentor outside the team should be, if you have a large company, you can have two mentors, one from a different business unit, one from the same business unit. If you have a smaller company, you can just have someone from a different business unit or a different region for this mentee. So this one person from outside the team helps the person integrate into the broader organizational culture and develop broader connections across the organization. Because what we see, the real thing that's lost in hybrid and remote settings is cross-organizational connections. 
they don't lose connections with their teams. In fact, they have stronger connections with their teams. But what they do lose is cross-organizational connections. So you have a mentee from outside their team dedicated specifically to integrating them into team culture and building connections with other people, meaning introducing them to other people in the organization, helping find connections, helping them collaborate. That is a very, very effective functionality for mentoring in hybrid and remote teams. Lastly, we wanted Dr. Sapersky's advice on how to facilitate collaboration and enhance communication both within our own teams and with our clients. The first piece of advice he has, establish boundaries and norms. Within teams, you need to establish boundaries and norms that are going to be appropriate for your team and or for your organization. I've seen both approaches work well. If it's a small organization, you can have an across the board approach. So for example, you could have an expectation that there's going to be certain working hours, let's say from 11 to three. And so everyone within those working hours, you would respond to, let's say you're using Microsoft Teams, you'd respond to a Microsoft Teams message within two hours and then the email within, you know, same thing, two hours. So you would have the norm that this is how you would respond and you know that's what's expected. And you're then not expected to respond outside of those working hours. In fact, what I've been recommending that leaders do, and they've been finding good success with it, is to schedule messages to not be sent until the start of working hours, common working hours the next day. That's a very effective technique. It doesn't put pressure on the individual. So you want to establish those working hours. The next piece of advice, establish shared tools. And remember that more isn't always better here. You also want to establish shared tools because people tend to become overwhelmed if they use things like, let's say you're using Google Docs, you're using Dropbox, you're using Microsoft Teams, various things, lots and lots of digital tools. You want to decrease cognitive overhead on people and communication effectiveness means less cognitive overhead. So having effective technology tools that you are using to communicate. And make sure you're using the tools effectively and not just trying to recreate an in-person experience virtually. Having effective protocols, effective approaches, you don't want to do things like, let's say, Zoom happy hours. Lots of leaders still use things like Zoom happy hours. And that is a very disengaging activity. First of all, <laughs> so team leaders use it to create engagement because they think, oh, this will create more engagement for us. In reality, when you look at the research, it creates more disengagement because of this forced socialization. People hate that. So may, they might not tell you, but they really hate that overwhelmingly. So you don't want Zoom happy hours. Uh, you're not only wasting people's time, but you're creating the opposite effect. Instead, what you want to do is things like a virtual water cooler session, where what you do is, let's say Microsoft Teams or in Slack, you have a channel dedicated to personal conversations for each six to eight people team. And then you start the morning, everyone starts by checking into work, by sharing how they're feeling right now, how their personal life is going, a fun fact about themselves or the world that others don't know and what they plan to focus on at work that day. And then they respond to three other people. So that is a very effective technique that creates that connection, collaboration, effective communication that's asynchronous, that virtual water cooler. And that's very helpful. It helps teams bond, especially junior staff members. And that is really important. And as you're taking into account which of these tools to use, consider what should be synchronous or happening in real time 
versus what can be asynchronous or happening in an on-demand way. You want to decide what communication is going to be synchronous and what communication is going to be asynchronous. You need many less meetings. Uh, there are way more meetings happening by Zoom, uh, by video conference and that need to happen. And that's really important to decrease the number of meetings and increase the number of, let's say, recordings where you send around the re video recording of yourself or report. Now, something I do strongly recommend is a meeting for virtual co-working where people meet once a day for every day for a hybrid team that's not in the office or a remote team where what you do is you meet and you turn off your microphones, you leave your speakers on and the video is optional and you focus on your individual tasks. You just work on your individual tasks. So you don't work on collaborative tasks. But if you have a question, you can ask a question. If you have an idea, you can brainstorm. If you have a problem, you can troubleshoot. And that's very helpful for junior staff members. So for architectural and design firms, integrating junior staff members for all sorts of firms. Virtual co-working is very helpful to establish that synchronous communication that's instantaneous that people can ask questions. So this is a very helpful technique. We've talked about how to effectively communicate and collaborate within our team structure, but how do these new rules apply to enhance communication with our clients? Now, with clients, one of the biggest complaints I hear from clients is that when people come into the office, so when people do come into the office, that they are see that this office is empty and they don't see other. Many leaders want to bring back their teams because they feel, well, how can I have this effective team bonding communication with each other in an empty office where we can't socialize with each other? I need to bring everyone back in. But that is really not a good solution where you're forcing people to do the unpaid labor of the commute just to be in the office and do the same things that they'll be doing at home. That is a very bad idea. We have clear research showing that that harms retention, harms productivity, harms collaboration, harms socialization, harms connections. Don't want to do that. What's much more effective is having incentives and shaping people's decision-making. This is called choice architecture. My expertise is in decision-making and behaviors. That's called choice architecture. So where you're shaping people's choices. And what we did with one of my clients, which is a 400 people research institute, uh, has a 15 story building. It has them on a 10 year lease, which they got right before the pandemic. So they couldn't really give it up. So what they decided to do is that they tore out the eighth floor. And so getting rid of like, everything on the eighth floor, putting people's private offices elsewhere, and just use that floor for completely social space. So just social lounges. That is what it's about. It's about social lounges. It's about people hanging out together. And we established a common time from 11 to 1 p.m. Everyone knows what they can expect is that they can go to that lounge and there's going to be some food there, some coffee, and they can hang out with each other if they want to socialize and they can work on their computers, they can do whatever they want, and they can work in that space where people are chatting so that they have that nice, comfortable environment. And that has been very successful. So where people know that clients know that they can come there and they can socialize together, that has been a very effective architecture and design choice of shaping people's behavior and creating a natural space to address a problem for clients. So that's one aspect that applies to clients. Another aspect that applies to clients is to make sure that you have appropriate asynchronicity with clients and you have appropriate communication styles and expectations. So setting expectations at the beginning of a client engagement is having 
a conversation with a client because there's so much different etiquette in digital communication where each company has different etiquette with how long it takes them to respond, what means they use to respond. So with clients, for example, something that I definitely do is get on their internal team Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever they use, get involved in it and, and have a channel dedicated to the future of work transition where you can talk about these topics. You can communicate to your clients. You can see what they're feeling. You'll have the more engaged client leaders talking about this and or staff members. So you can have not simply just one focus group, but continuous conversation and communication. That is incredibly helpful in getting the what's happening with the client and what they care about. And you'll see that clients change their minds way too frequently. So right now, for example, one of my clients had one plan. And now that COVID is starting to go back, they're like, well, maybe we should change our plans for some of the architecture and design choices. I'm like, no, this is a long-term thing. You really want to be thinking about the long-term. Don't let a short-term surge change your mind. But if I didn't interrupt it on that Slack channel in a timely manner, you know, in two months, I might have heard that, well, we really don't want to go ahead with this project. We really want to do this other thing instead. And I wouldn't have been able to nip it in the bud. So this is the kind of thing that you really want to have this continuous communication and getting the pulse of your clients through getting on their internal communication channels and having a venue where they can discuss it. So creating that community essentially around the future of work transition. Now we'll hear from leaders from two top interior design giants of design firms on how their teams are innovating their communication and collaboration styles, regardless of the physical distance. What you're going to hear next are clips from a ThinkLab digital seminar with David Galulo, CEO and Chief Creative Director of Wrapped Studio, and Brett Schwery, Senior Vice President and Director of Interiors at AECOM. You're going to hear them talking about connection, collaboration, and culture in today's era of distributed work. First, here's David on their digital office hours. We have individuals in our studio, particularly like design directors that just have, you know, Friday afternoons, they'll do three hours of open Zoom and people can drop in and ask questions or have them take a look at something. It's a way to have that casual drop-in moment, which has been fairly successful. That's one of the digital tools we've been, we've been playing with. Here's Brett on how their meetings are evolving. One thing that was kind of interesting yesterday, one of our offices did the takeover of a weekly call where they were talking about what's up with their office, kind of introducing everybody to what's been happening with them for the last year. And typically where that particular meeting would be a PowerPoint of slides of everything else, what they did creatively and testing it, whether we all liked it or not, it was a way to be a bit informal. They asked everybody to actually go for a walk for the meeting. And just be connected. And there was no visuals. And we we're talking about sharing design content, you know, projects that we're working on or initiatives that we're working on. And the entirety of our conversation was everyone walking around. Now, everyone was also asked to post pictures of where they were walking. So it was kind of fun. It was like a little bit interactive, but that was the only imagery that was being shared, nothing to do with the PowerPoint. But Yet you were in context having a little bit more of an informality around how the meeting was going on. We have to test these things so that we can feel comfortable continuing to test these, not only for ourselves, but share this back to our clients and how some of these stories might work for them as well. David shares that while we've learned a lot about how to come together and think about connection and interaction, 
we can't use the same old tools in the same old way. There have been huge wins over the last two years. We've learned a lot about different ways to come together and different ways to think about connection and interactions. For us, I'll say it's become very apparent that we need new tools to figure out what this new hybrid life is like. Because what happened is everyone came back to the studio and we're doing, we're basically suggesting two to three days a week. We're leaving it to the team to organize themselves to come in at the same time because it's really about connection. But what happens is because we've lived a world for the last two years where we peppered our lives with Zoom meetings, people are coming into the studio and half the day they're in separate corners of the office on meetings with remote teams and other offices or clients across the globe. And so we're not getting the benefit of people coming together. And so folks are like, geez, I could have stayed home today for the hour that I actually spent with people. You know, I, I lost my commute time. And so... We're now working with people to try to rearrange their schedules and say, okay, there's portions of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that we're not going to set up meetings. And we're going to work with our clients to try to schedule, you know, we had no Zoom Fridays. Now people are moving Zoom to Fridays because they want Thursdays to be free so that when they come in the office, which should be about connection, they actually have time and the ability to come together and connect. So, you know, there's going to be tools that we need that we haven't had in the past. I always say we knew how to do it when we were all in the office. We knew how to do it when we were all home. The next learning period is going to be really the hardest because half and half hybrid is a very difficult thing to try to manage. David also shares how they're using physical interaction outside of the workplace to build bonds and foster connection. The last two years, our whole selves were on display. And so in a lot of ways, we know more about each other than we ever have. And that has been an incredible win. And so when we come back to the studio, we're actually, we have a bunch of staff that have never seen the studio. They just showed up for the first time because they were hired during remote time. We're actually flying everybody in El Paso, Texas from our three studios, and we're going to take a bus to Marfa, Texas for three days and see some art and hang out and get to know each other again. Like that, Because anybody can work in a team remotely or together, but really it's yeah. understanding what excites your coworker, what, how you can support them in a way that brings joy. That's when our best work comes together, when people really feel cared for, really feel seen. And we find that happens in the best way, away, somewhere. Lastly, here's Brett and David with how policies have to evolve and allow for experimentation. First, here's Brett on AECOM's Freedom to Grow program. It's really an operational way of approaching how we came out of the pandemic from a one-on-one -on -one with the individual employee themselves, not specific to space. We had a whole another approach that we did as it relates to spe specifically space and coming back in. This had more to do with how the employee can grow in their own way uh, and be effective in what they do. So it was trifecta, really. It's the client that we are all serving. It's ourselves as an employee and then it's the company. So what works best in that sort of triad? So it became more about yourself and your work habits and how you work effectively 
And then how do you approach that to your own personal career growth? So two different things that merging together. I think that's, I think that's incredible. And, and we tell clients all the time that they shouldn't be inventing new reasons to make policy around coming back to the, it should be built on what they've always stood for, what they've always believed to be true about themselves. All of it's there. It's, we're just experimenting to figure out how it works. For us, a couple of years ago, we went to unlimited PTO because we just thought people need to go out into the world. They need to celebrate life and they're better designers. They're better thinkers. They have a more diversity of opinion, et cetera. And the rule around that, there are some rules about how much contiguous time you can take, et cetera. But it was really, if the team, if you coordinate it with the team approves, and if you coordinate it with the work you have to do, deadlines and clients, then you're responsible to the team and to the client. You shouldn't be responsible to a policy book. That's the last thing that you yeah. should be thinking about. If you treat people like adults and you, you know, when you come back to the office, it should be the same way. People, they should, they're responsible to the team. They need to think about what's best for the work, what's best for the client, what's best for the team. And by the way, what's best for them. And somewhere in there, and it's not perfect, Brett, you're absolutely right because there's people involved. Somewhere in there is the perfect blend that is going to shift by the second and is going to be individual per person. It's really hard to manage. That's the thing coming out of this, that we can't manage by policy anymore as some organizations were used to. It really has to be how we treat individuals like adults. We let them think about what's best for them, what's best for the team, and what's best for the office, but constantly balancing those things. Here's Amanda to close out the episode and share instructions on how to obtain credit for listening to today's episode. Three things from this episode that stood out to me. First, nearly 70% of communication between teams today is virtual. Second, we should create user experience that are customized to remote settings rather than trying to shoehorn in what worked in the past in person. Finally, being physically together isn't necessarily more effective for brainstorming. At Mannington Commercial, we craft a full range of flooring products to inspire your creative vision, fit the performance needs of your spaces, and meet your sustainability goals. Ultimately, what we're crafting is not only a product, but a partnership. Mannington is thrilled to join with ThinkLab for this episode of The Learning Objective, as we seek to deepen our knowledge of the digital world. For a deeper dive into this topic, or to view all the CEUs offered by Mannington, please visit manningtoncommercial.com forward slash CEU. To obtain credit for listening, simply visit the show notes of this episode and click the link to take the short quiz. That's it. Thank you. Thanks for listening and learning with us in today's episode. The Learning Objective is a Surround Podcast Network original production. Check out more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of The Learning Objective was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Samantha Sager.